Amen. Amen. Hey, church, let me do this. Let me just read over us uh, today's text. If you just uh, kind of find yourself in a still spot, if you want to close your eyes and just receive the word, uh, we fully believe here that the word of God is powerful and active and sharper than a double-edged sword. So let me just read this over us before we dig into it. 1 John chapter 5. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of Him. And by this we know that the love of the, of the, the by this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey His commandments. For this is the love of God that we keep His commandments, and His commandments are not burdensome. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? Hey, we're going to dig in this week to 1 John chapter 5. We are in the middle of a series called Give Love a Try. And we've been kind of hammering through 1 John for so long that in all honesty, as we do the welcome, we're not even sure which week to tell you we're in, right? If you've been tracking along with us, we go, hey, welcome to 1 John. It's week it's this week, right? It's like a 15-week series. We are digging in verse by verse to the book of 1 John. And I just think in God's sovereignty and His grace and His goodness to us, it's really quite interesting that the weekend that we celebrate our victory and independence uh, as a great nation is the same weekend that we end up at the text where John is going to hammer home what it means to really be a victor in the eternal perspective. So we're going to dig in today. I hope if you came in uh, this morning, you, you came in um, with all, di- all of your digits. Did everybody make it in with all 10 fingers? Anybody lose one last night? All right, great. We just wanted to know. We're going to pray for you and see if we can attach it back on. I don't know if I can do that, but we'll try, right? And so I, I hope that last night we had a great celebration of our nation and our country, and I hope this morning as we walk out of here that we will walk out celebrating and walking in victory in which Christ has given us. It's even greater than the victory he gave us this nation. So uh, let me pray for us, and we're going to dig in. Jesus, we love you, and we thank you that your word is powerful and that it has the ability and um, the probability that it will change our lives forever. God, we just want to sit and receive your word. God, may I say nothing out of selfish ambition, uh, but may I only stand behind the cross and proclaim what it says. And we pray all this in your name. Amen. All right, let's dig in. So verse 1 says this, Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves who has been born of him. So we're kind of trekking along here in 1 John and over and over again, if you've been with us, John's just kind of beating the drum. This letter that John beats over and over and over again is really this message of the assurance of, the, of salvation when it's rooted in Christ and what Christ did on the cross. And so over and over again, John kind of says something, he goes on a tangent, and then he comes right back. And in chapter 5, all he's doing is resetting the conversation again. He's resetting, he's assuring this church that, hey, there's some heresy, there's some bad teaching around you, but church, don't forget that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except for him. Remember this church, that Christ is who he says he is, and is trustworthy. And over and over and over again, John 
which kind of beats the drum of here's how we know if we belong to God. If we believe in Jesus, we belong to God. If we love his children, we belong to God. If we love his commandments, we belong to God. Everybody get it? Yeah, and then John goes, okay, let me tell you something. Here's how we know if we belong to God. And over and over again, John is just going to beat the drum of the assurance of our salvation because what he wants us to get is is the thing I think the Heavenly Father wants us to get, is that Christ came to seek and to save that was lost. And when Christ seeks and when Christ saves, he never loses what he's already saved. And it's just assurance of our salvation. And I love this. He says this, if you kind of look back into verse 1, it says, everyone who believes, and if you've been tracking with us, I'll just remind you of what that word means. Uh, If this is your first weekend, welcome to the church of 1122. But here's what this, this verse, this word believes means. It means to trust. It means to put full weight. It means to fully buy into. So he says, everyone who believes or trusts that Jesus is the Christ, or Jesus is the Messiah, or Jesus is the Savior. So everyone who, who admits that Christ is the Savior, and I'm going to surrender to him, has been born of God. And so John goes, don't forget that, that when we surrender our lives to Jesus, what happens is this regeneration, this new birth, and we become part of the family of God. And he goes on to say this, and this is very true, everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. Now, this is not like super deep theological significance. I mean, it has significance, but it, you don't have to be a seminary student to understand this. If you love God, you love his children, right? Let me put it simply. If you love me, by definition, you love my kids. If you don't like my kids, I don't like you. Easy, right? My kids are beautiful. They're godly young girls. They're really, they're wise beyond their years. I got a four-year-old and a two-year-old then if I were to ask them right now, who likes the color orange? They would say this, nobody. And then I would ask them another question, and I would say, well, who likes the colors red and black? And they would respond with this, everybody, daddy, everybody. If you don't love my children and their wisdom, then I don't really like you. And so what, what John is saying here is one of the ways that we know if we've been born of God is that we love those born of God. It's why if you say, I love God, but I really don't like the people in my row." Right? It begins to eat at you, doesn't it? Like when you begin to show up to church and go, I'm just going to try to avoid so-and-so. It doesn't feel comfortable. You know why? Because it's not scriptural. God says if we love him, then we love the people that we go to church with. And so you might have to, you might just stop right here, spend the rest of the time repenting of the fact that you've been avoiding somebody this morning. Right? And when you get done, I'll keep going. I'll be back. You just come back and join us when you're done repenting of that. Right? Verse 2. By this, we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. Now, up until chapter 5, the the rhythm or the, the equation has been, how do I know if I love God? Like, how do I know if I love God? And over and over again, John says, you know you love God, you know you belong to God if you If you love Jesus and believe that Jesus is fully God and fully man, if you love God's people, and if you uh, love God's word. So over and over again, throughout the first four chapters, the, the mantra has been, if you do these things, it's proof that you love God. How do I know if I love God? Well, do you love Jesus? Do you love God's people? Do you love God's word? 
over and over again. That's the, that's the drumbeat that John's been beating on. But here all of a sudden with this word when, which is called the hotan clause in Greek, John switches the emphasis of the whole first four chapters. He switches it to not how do I know if I love God, but now he's asking, well, how do I know if I love God's children? For the first four chapters, over and over again, John says, how do I know if, if, how do I know if I love God? And now the question is, well, how do I know if I love God's children? Now, I fully, I fully believe that this is not like a shift in strategy. I don't think John's going, well, let's, let's, at the last, book, last chapter of the book, let's shift the whole strategy. I think what John would have us see is that we love God by loving his children, and we love God's children by loving their father. And I think it's super important that we realize that loving God's children and loving God are just, it's, it's two sides of the same coin. You can't lose one without losing the other. And we love God, and so we love his children. And now we're going to ask the question, well, how do, I, how do I know if I'm loving God's children? Now, here, here's, let me just tell you, me, if this is me, let's, let's head back just for a second. I want to finish this first up. Uh, if it's me, um, here's what I do when I go to how do we know if we love God's children, I immediately go to the uh, quantity of my actions. Like, I immediately go to. How do you know if you love your wife? Well, today's her birthday. I bought her a present. I put my dishes up last night. How do you know if you love your children? Well, I pulled my children in my lap last night as we watched the fireworks. I immediately go to, how much have I done to prove to you I love you? It's a quantity of actions. If you were to ask me, hey, Ryan, how do you know if you love somebody? It's all about quantity of actions. And what John is going to help us see here is it's not the quantity of action that proves our love. It's actually the quality of affection we place above. It's not the quantity of our actions that proves our loves. It's the quality of our affection that we place above. And what, Paul, or what John says, this is how we know we are loving others. This is how we know we are loving God's children. When we love God and when we love his commands. Here's the, the order that, Paul, that John, I keep saying Paul as if Paul wrote the book of 1 John. It should be really evident. But here's what John says. John says this is kind of the flow of how we get from loving God to loving others. John says we start by loving God. Now this is fundamental. I'm going to show you two different tracks of obedience. This is fundamental. We begin by loving God, which is simply this. We begin to pour ourselves out before him. We begin to press into him. We begin to run after him through worship and studying the word. We begin to pursue God for who he is, that he is a pursuable God, that he makes himself available to us, and we pursue him, and as we pursue God, what happens is, is we get to the point where we trust him, because trust is rooted in a kind of a repetition of someone being trustworthy. So the more we pursue God, the more we run after God, the more available God makes himself to us, the more we trust him. In fact, we, we're built, our, our path, our our, um, our mechanisms of obedience are actually built on trust and intimacy. You see, our ability to obey, obey increases, it increases in regards to trust and intimacy much faster than in regards to knowledge and content. Here's what that means. I am much more obedient to someone the more I trust them. Now, the only place this isn't true is Google. You can Google it and just you believe it because I've Googled and that has to be true, right? Throw Google out. It's messing us up, right? But obedience increases. Our obedience, it increases in regards to intimacy and trust 
not just to, are they right? Like, we are wired to ask, should I trust that person in this situation, not should I trust their content? Here's the best example. A few weeks ago, some of my friends went fishing, and one of my friends, Scott Watley, who is our video director here, he's out fishing with them. They're fishing, and one of the guys catches a stingray. Stingray, the barb, pops him in the hand. He's now got poison in his hand. His hand's starting to swell. Well, Scott's going, hey, guys, we need to get a bucket of hot water. We need to put his hand in the bucket of hot water. I don't know how it works, but the hot water will osmosis the suck the poison out. I don't know what science it is. It might be science fiction, but the hot water will pull the poison out. Here's the problem. Scott's a video director. You don't trust a video director with your life. You don't trust a video director with taking your kids across the street, much yet whether or not you're going to live or die. So the video director is going, hey, trust me, the hot water, it will work. I saw it on YouTube, right? And so we have no trust for Scott because he's the video director. So what do my friends do? Well, they call 911. Nice little truck comes out with blinking lights. Paramedic comes out. Paramedic, they're looking at him. Paramedic, here's what's happened. He's got a hand, his arm's swelling. What do we do? We, we really love our friend. We don't want him to be the next Steve Irwin. What do we do right now? And, and this is what the paramedic says. He leans in and goes, well, here's what we need. Everybody leans in. We need a bucket and we need hot water, right? Scott was right the whole time, but why do you not trust the video director? Because it's a matter of intimacy and trust. Should I trust you in this moment with the content you have? The more we know the person and the more we trust the person in their position, the easier it is for us to be obedient. So for us, as we pursue God and run after God, we trust him, and then all we do is we begin to obey his commandments. When we trust someone, we, you just do what they say. It's just natural, right? Just think about the person you trust the most. When they give you advice, you go, well, I'm going to put it in action. Why? Because I trust the person. So the more we pursue God, the more we trust God, the easier it is to obey his commands. In other words, I trust you, God, so whatever you say, I'll give it a shot. And when we trust God and we begin to do what God says, all of a sudden we realize, oh, he's right a lot. And by a lot, he's right all the time. And so when we love God and pursue God, we begin to trust God and therefore we do what he says. And when we're doing what God says, we realize God is right. And if God tells me to love other people, I trust them. I know God loves me and I know God's right. So I'm going to love other people. And our love for other people starts from the origin of our love for God. Our ability to love other people is not by willpower in this, in this track. It's actually driven by who God is in response to who God is. And we begin to love people around us because of who God is. Now, here's the other track. And I would just be honest with you. This is, the more of the, this is more of the normative track. See, the other track is we love God. We obey his commandments. We love others. The other track is this, is that we love others. Like, the other track is this, is that we go, you know what? I'm going to love other people. It's really easy. We st- when you start on this track, you begin to go, I'm going to love the people I like. Right? You ever notice that the people you like, when God says love them, you're like, okay, I got that one. Like, that's easy. Right? Like, I really like, I genuinely like my wife. Right? I genuinely, I'm a huge fan of my wife. So when God says love other people, I go, that's easy. I'll love my wife. I genuinely like my kids. I like hanging out with my kids. So when God says love your kids, I go, great. I love my kids. Right? I like the people I work with, almost all of them, almost all the time. And so when God says, love the people you work with, I'm like, I like them. It's easy to love them. I like you guys. So when God says, love the people, love your church, love the people that, that we get to do church with, I go, I like them, so it's easy to love them. Well, what happens is when we move from, I love the people I like, to, well, the Bible said, love everybody. 
all of a sudden I get obligated, right? Every weekend, the end of October, there's this weekend where a bunch of people show up in red and black and a bunch of people show up in blue and gaudy color orange. And on that Saturday, at the end of every year, at the end of every, every October, it becomes an obligation for me to love my enemies, right? You know what I'm talking about. I just, I have to love, now, now also every, you know, every four years we begin to vote. And everybody in here, you have, you have a party line, right? You, 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 it's like, I'm, I, I love Jesus, I love the party, and I, why, that's, your, that's you. And we begin, it begins to become an obligation to love the people that I don't like. And what happens is, is I begin to force myself, or I begin to will myself to love those I feel obligated to love. And the danger here is that it's easy to love the people we like. All of a sudden, we're willing ourselves to love the people we're obligated to love. And somewhere in this paradigm, we think, the better I am at willing myself to love people that I'm obligated to love, the more God will be happy with me. The more God will approve of me. And here's what happens in this willpower model, is as we will ourselves, every time we have success, we feel like a million dollars. And every time we fail, we're exhausted because you and I were not designed to will ourselves to love people. You and I are designed to respond to love in loving others. To respond to the cross by simply going, Jesus, I trust you. God, I trust you. I'm going to do what you say. And so I'm going to love people, not out of obligation and willpower, but I'm going to love people out of a response to the fact that you are love and you love me. So John says, this this is how we know if we love God's children. We love God. And it flows from there. Verse 3. For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. Now, can I just tell you, I, this last part, I love and I hate all at the same time. Like, his commands are not burdensome. And in that moment, I go, oh, I love that. I love it from a theological perspective that Christ came and Christ fulfilled the law, and therefore the law no longer is a weight or a burden upon me. And at the same time, I, I, I grow a little bit, I struggle, I grow a little bit anxious about this verse because for some reason when I wake up every day, I live life as if his commandments are burdensome. There's just like catch between like what I know is true and what I experience. And all of a sudden I, I love what is true, but I'm struggling with what I experience. Now, I, I, grew up, um, I grew up in a culture in which I literally did not drink IBC root beer. You know why? Because they put it in a beer bottle. Like, I can't, I'm not kidding. Like, that's why my family chose not to drink IBC root beer. It was in a beer bottle. And, and beer is bad, and therefore beer bottles make root beer bad. I don't know how that works psychologically, but that's the culture I grew up in. We just, we, you didn't do things because the world would think, oh, those are bad. And I remember when I was younger and trying to walk out my faith, the law was burdensome. Like, I remember there'd be times I'm like, I really want to do that, guys, but God said I can't, so I'm just going to sit in my room and be bored. Right? I just remember growing up, there was just this mentality of this is tough. It's a struggle. Now, this, this statement is, is, is true. It's in Scripture. Therefore, it is true. We, I fully believe that Scripture is true. And, and, and so when I begin to struggle with how I respond to a verse, what I have to do is go, this is true. How, do, how does my worldview line up with what is true and what cannot change? And so it says this, his commands are not burdensome. I think there's two things we have to understand to understand this verse. First is this, God's desire for the law is our delight. God's desire for his law is our delight. I love the picture of 
uh, the nation of Israel, that God comes into Egypt, pulls the nation of Israel out. They go through the Exodus. God gives them freedom. God gives them an identity. God gives them a leader. God, God does everything they need to be his people. And then he gives them the Ten Commandments to protect him. So the, the Ten Commandments was never do this and then you can be my people. It was you are my people. You are my people. So this law, these commandments are to protect you. They're to protect you. You're mine. Here's my protection. So what we've got to realize is that God's design for the law was not to handcuff us to boredom, but was to actually protect us and give us full freedom. That God's desire for the law was our delight. King David, who was the king of of um, Israel, we, we know him from the David and Goliath. He's the little ruddy guy that threw the rock and killed the giant. He he wrote a lot of a lot of psalms and a lot of he wrote a lot of stuff that became scripture. And as he began to reflect on God's law, he he captured this great song in Psalms one nineteen. And it's hundred and seventy six verses, and hundred and seventy four of those verses directly talks about God's commandments, God's testimony, God's law. And in that entire book, of the entire chapter of Psalms 119, David just begins to talk about God's law in a way that helps us see that God's desire for his law is our delight. Psalms 119, verse 47, it says this, For I find my delight in your commands, which I love. David's like, I, I love your law. I love your the, you know, the, the Bible, I love the scripture, I love the word. It's what I delight in it. Like, I love it, right? Now, we jacked up the word love in our culture because I love my wife and I love Mountain Dew, right? And so that's a little different, right? I really love my wife more. Um, and so we begin to look at this, and what David is saying is, I would empty myself before your law. I want to lay, lay before your commands. They're beautiful, right? He also says this. He says that in, in verse... Um, 54, he says, your statutes have been my songs in the house of my sojourning. Here's what he says. I took your statutes, I took your law, and I wrote a mixtape for them. That's how awesome they were. And in fact, the book of Psalms is a mixtape of God's law. Our band is actually right now writing and developing, and they're building an album for us to to listen to and to worship with and to put in our cars and continue the discipleship process and as they were beginning to write the songs i went to them with this verse and i suggested maybe we write a song about the traffic code like i yield to oncoming traffic i think that's a great worship song right no we look at the law and go oh that's just burdens and rules david looks at god's law and says it causes me to worship your words are so i have such delight in your law it leads me to worship let me give you one more david says 174 things we're only gonna look at three of them right Therefore, I love your commands above gold, above fine gold. David says, I love your commands. I love your law. I love your words so much. I would rather have your law. I'd rather have your commands than all the the wealth and riches of the world. That when David looked at God's law, he said, look, they're, they're bigger than gold. They're better than fine gold. There's nothing that compares to having the word of the Lord. His commands are not burdensome. Here's the second thing that I think is true. Um, obedience is always lighter than disobedience. Obedience is always 
lighter than disobedience. Let me just provide an example. You're driving down JTB, you're going 10 over because you know subconsciously the cop will only pull me over if I go 11 over because somewhere I read that on Google that if I go 11 over, I'm speeding, but 10 over, I'm okay. And so you're driving and you're going like, you're going, you get 65, you're going, I don't even know what it is, so I should probably pay attention. You're going like 9 over on JTB, 10 over, and you know I'm, I'm kind of breaking the law, but I'm not really breaking it enough that the cops are going to want to come, you know, arrest me. And so I'm feeling good. What happens when the state trooper arrives by? Like you hit the brakes, and I know because you're in front of me, and you're like, I'm going to hit you. You're, you're as if you were going 100 miles per hour. You hit the brakes, which I know the cop goes, I just saw their front end dip. They're probably like slowing down because I'm here. And you begin to like, you're, you're going to cuss, but your kid's in the back, so you just say, shoot. And your kid knows that's not what daddy wanted to say. And all of a sudden, like, your, your anxiety raises, your heart's beating. You've got to go get a physical now because your, your heart's skipping a beat. It, and that's only because you were going nine over. Now, what if you're going three under? Cop car comes right. Right, state trooper? Hey, Mr. Trooper, glad you're doing your job today. And you keep going. We all know this to be true. Obedience is always lighter than disobedience. Let me show this to you a little bit by examining God's word. I just want you to think for a second. What if, what if we lived in a world that God's commands were 100% obeyed? Now, you can't even think about that world because it doesn't exist. It, it, it will. There's a new heaven and a new earth coming. But just think about it. Right now, if you walked out those doors and you walked into a world that every single person in all of human, human existence just obeyed God's law, like what God said, we did. I want to prove to you that obedience is lighter than disobedience. We already, we already believe it. We already, we're okay with it. But let me just show you a few things. Here's a command. Honor your father and mother. So just think about how much lighter life is, how much a, a more blessed experience it is if your kids only know these words, yes, sir, yes, ma'am. Wouldn't that be beautiful? Hey, it's time for bed. Why don't you go, why don't you, let's go get ready for bed. Yes, sir. And in fact, um, dad, I'm going to go down and brush my teeth and get in pajamas. I'm going to have me and my little sister just waiting on the floor for you to come read us Bible stories. Don't even get up from the couch. Finish this ESPN 30 for 30. We'll be ready for you, father. That'd be awesome, Right? Or just think about this. Think about if you have a teenage, a teenage daughter, right? And 30 to 45 minutes before your curfew, she comes walking in, right? And, and, and she honors you. So she walks in and goes, you know, Mom, Dad, I wanted, you to be to go, I wanted you to be able to go to bed at your normal bedtime. I know it's normally 8.30. It's, it's late now. It's 9. And so what I wanted to do was bless you and honor you. I've come home early. Um, you go ahead and go to bed. I'm going to go sit in the living room and read the scriptures. All right? Some of you, your kids are like 20-something. You're like, if they would just leave the house, honored me, get a job, right? Well, just think about if we lived in a world where honoring your father was just normal. How much more blessed would it be? I would never have to negotiate with my four-year-old about bedtime, right? Here's another one. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not commit adultery. Just think about this. If we just got this one right, just think about the implications for our culture. See, sex, tra sex trafficking wouldn't end because it would have never begun. Divorce rate in the United States plummets. Families can sit together at the dinner table without an awkwardness of knowing that someone's not at the table. Your children could grow up with you in their household, not just with you every other weekend. You could grow up with your parents, because I know it's, like, it's, it's generational. Like We didn't invent it. This generation didn't invent adultery. This generation is just walking under the implications of disobedience. And it's heavy. Disobedience is, is heavy. 
divorce would drop. Families would be together. Heck, think, think about this. My kids could watch whatever they wanted to on TV. We wouldn't have to put all the different codes on so my kids can only watch certain things. If sex didn't, if, if, if adultery didn't exist and if sex didn't drive the market, I could finish the season of Game of Thrones. Like, it's just a different culture when adultery is running it. It's just, it's just a lot more light. It's a lot more blessed if we're in obedience. How about this one? You shall not steal. Right? How many of you guys just lose your keys? You're like, bummer, I lost my keys. Right? Anybody struggle with that? Well, here's the deal. When, when there's no, you shall not steal. When there's no stealing, you'll never lose your keys. You know why? Because you don't need them. You don't need keys. In fact, the lock's not even invented because nobody's going to come in your house and take anything. And so it's just easier. You get in your truck. You don't even have to crank it. You just like hit the little magic button. It cranks up. You don't even need your keys. Here's another thing you don't need. You don't need 500 passwords to log on to your ESPN account. Like, I can't even check scores some days because I can't remember which, path, which kid and number and height that I put this time. Like, right? I, it's crazy. All right, here's another one. You shall not bear false witness. Right? Let me simplify this. Don't lie. Right? Obedience. Just think about this. How many white lies have you told that you've had to keep up with and it becomes a mind game to figure out whether or not am I lying? I, I still got one that haunts me all the time. Right? I was in eighth grade. I had something at lunch. It wasn't good. So I was trying to get to the bathroom. I couldn't qu- I got to the bathroom. I got to the tile, but I didn't quite get to the porcelain, right? And so as I was aiming, and just I'll, let, I'll leave all the details out. As I was aiming projectiles towards the toilet, they landed amongst the tile. The bathroom was a wreck. I was sick. I went right back to the nurse's office. I went home, right? I didn't even think about telling somebody that I figured somebody would, would notice, right? You walk in the bathroom and go, something either died here or someone's sick, right? And so I, I, it was awful. It was gross. And I came back a few days later after getting, uh, getting some medicine and getting better, and I couldn't find my, my really good friend, Justin Boyd. And I said, well, where's Boyd? And they're like, well, Boyd got suspended. Well, why did Boyd get suspended? Well, somebody had a description of a chunky guy with short black hair throwing up in the bathroom. <laughs> Guilty. Chunky, bald hair, and, and I threw up in the bathroom, right? All three. And somebody said it was Boyd. And to this day, I never went and told them that Boyd didn't throw up in the bathroom. It was me. Right? To this day, my conscience is eating away at me that I bore false witness. Like, to this day. And we all know this to be true. And if no one lies, guess what? You can trust. You can trust everybody. You can trust your boss. You can trust your spouse. There is no fear of, are they lying to me? Here's another one. Judge not that you be not judged. Just think about this. Just don't judge. Like just think about the, the lightness. Just think about what happens. Every morning, women, you get up and you put your face on. You try 17 outfits on. And the whole reason we do that in this culture is because we're going out because we know the moment we walk outside of our doors, people are going to start sizing us up. People are going to start writing us off. What if, no matter what your history is, no matter what your past is, what if you could just walk around and there would be zero judging of you, zero sizing up of you? Now, I know the church has a, a, a reputation of being a place that judges. And I'll just say this. This place, we don't judge. We are a movement for all people. And so no matter what you came from, no matter what you did last night, no matter what you did this morning, no matter what you're walking in here with this, this, this weekend, I just want you to hear this. The Bible says, hey, what if we walked in a way we weren't sizing each other up, but we were just hoping for each other's futures? Another one, do not be anxious about anything. Obedience is always lighter than disobedience. Do not be anxious about anything. Anxiety 
leads to fatigue. It leads to uh, health issues. It leads to frustration. You, wait, you lay awake all night, anxious about the next day. You wake up the next day irritated because you didn't get any sleep. And, and the Bible says don't be anxious about anything, but in everything we should bring it to the Lord so that he would replace our anxiety with his peace. And then finally, this one. In John chapter 8, Jesus is meeting uh, he gets kind of brought in front of this group of Pharisees, and they're, they've got this young lady, and she's been caught in adultery, and she's been brought before them, and they said, Jesus, this woman has been caught in adultery, which is a little awkward. Like, just imagine if you showed up to church this morning, and somebody walked up on stage and go, hey, this is so-and-so, and she got caught in adultery last night. It's just weird. It's just uncomfortable, and they're beginning to, to kind of get around her. They're judging her. These, these religious leaders are going, Jesus, what should we do? Moses' law says we're supposed to stone her, and here's what Jesus said. He stands up next to her, and he says, Women, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, no one, Lord. He goes, where are all the people that condemned you? She goes, they're not here. They're not here. And then he goes on to say this, neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. He looks at her. Jesus looks at this, this woman and says, don't sin anymore. Don't sin anymore. Every one of us knows this, that sin is prepackaged with pain. Sin is pre-packaged with pain. Now, if you're a believer, you would say sin is pre-packaged with pain. If you're not a Christian, you still believe this truth. You, you would just say it like this. Bad things lead to bad consequences. Bad decisions lead to bad consequences. We all truly believe that sin is pre-packaged with pain. Like we, would, we, would, we believe on a mental level that obedience is always lighter than disobedience. That sin, is the, the sin that's prepackaged with pain will kill our minds, will kill our bodies, will kill our conscience, will kill our self-image, will kill our self-respect, will kill our culture, will kill our future. And yet we still wake up and we go and we, we walk in disobedience. So I have to ask this question. If obedience is lighter, if we all know that sin is prepackaged with pain, if we all know that bad decisions lead to bad consequences, then why not just be obedient? It's the, it's the perfect question. Why not? I think there's two reasons. One is this. The temporal pain is not enough to change. That we kind of just got ourselves in this kind of tunnel vision looking at the decisions we made last night, the consequences we have today, and we just go, honestly, the pain's not bad enough. I just kind of get up, I kind of come to church, I just go, hey, God, forgive me of those things, and I go right back to them because the pain's not enough. And I would just beg you and I would plead with you for a second to just step back like from that temporal straw view tunnel view just step back for a second and begin to ask my sin and my decisions what consequences and pain are they having on those around me what consequences and pain is my decision having on my family the way I'm choosing to serve myself how is that disserving my family my husband my wife my children my parents Right? Some of you, you're single right now, and you're going, well, what I do, what I want to do, and it doesn't affect anyone, except for the fact that you're laying the foundation of the legacy that you're going to hand to your children one day. Except for the fact that when we get into this little tunnel and we only look at us, we don't realize that every single decision, every single action I have, I make, has an impact on everybody who lives within arm's length of me and my community. 
And if we would just step back from the tunnel for a second and see it from an, an eternal perspective, what we'd realize is this, is that even if my sin didn't have any effect on anybody in the world around me, my sin is the same sin that required Christ to go to the cross and die. Our sin causes pain. Now, here's the truth. I struggled with this for years. The temple change is not big enough. I'm fine. And here's what you got to know about me. I was, I'm, I'm, if it was like first century, I'd be a Pharisee. Like, I'm a legalist. Like, I read a verse in the Bible, and I'm like, if everybody's not doing this, we might all go to hell. Like, I just, I tend to lean towards this, like, this legalistic mindset. And I was really, really good. Pastor Joby picks on me all the time about the fact that I wouldn't drink Coke and Diet Coke because I thought it was a mixed drink, right? And I didn't because I thought, well, you're not supposed to drink. And if I'm going to have a mixed drink, then there goes my testimony. I might go to hell, right? I was really, really good. I've had sex with one woman, my wife, right? I'm really, really good. Like if I was a, be- if I was a betting man, which I'm not because I'm really good and I don't bet and I think that's for the Lord, right? And so, uh, and so if I was a betting man and I were to bet how good you are versus me, what I would realize is I think I'm probably better than you. I think when I stand up here, I have less to share about how bad I was. But here's what happened. When I stepped out of the temporal and I stepped into the eternal, what I realized is, is that I'm a wretched black-hearted sinner in need of a Savior, and I cannot be good enough, and you cannot be good enough to, to do anything apart from the cross. Amen. And so what I realized is, in that, is that in that moment, in that temporal view, everything's all right. But when I step back, and when you step back and go, no matter how good I think it is, no matter how proud of myself I am, when I step back, what I realize is that there's something bigger going on here. The second reason that I think we miss obedience is this, is this statement. And you and I make it all the time. No matter how hard I try, I fail. That is both true and, in, and indicting. It's true in this. It's true in the fact that there is no reality in which we are able to overcome the world in the sin on our own. Like we go through all these commands and we're like, it's just easier to be obedient. Right. But there's no reality in which you and I by ourselves can overcome the world in the sin. And that at one moment is crushing, but the next moment it's indicting in the fact that our best efforts are an indictment that what we really need is a savior and not another go get them speech. It's why every week when we show up to church here, we just preach the gospel, we just preach the gospel, we just point to Christ, we just point to the cross. Because what you and I need, we don't need another go get them boy speech where you can go out and will yourself to do what you're obligated to do. But what we need is a constant reminder of the gospel and a constant focusing of our hearts on the fact that you and I by ourselves cannot be good enough, but we need a Savior. Verse 4, for everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world and this is the victory that has overcome the world our faith real quick this word right here world simply as 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 john's describing being overcomers of the world john's saying what we've overcome is the trap of sin what we've overcome is the systems and the practices of sin and and society and what john is saying is everyone has been born of god overcomes the world, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Son of God and our Savior has overcome the trap of sin, has overcome the practices and systems of sin. And this is the victory that has overcome the world. What victory overcame the world? Not our actions, our faith. What John says, this is what overcomes the world. When we step up in humility go, I'm not good enough and I need a Savior. And I believe 
I believe that Jesus is fully God and fully man, that he lived a perfect life, that he died a death on the cross to pay the debt for my sins. I believe it's that faith that overcomes the world. It's that confession that I can't, I can't do this, but he already has. I love this. These red words are important for us today. Overcomes, victory, and overcome. They're the same word. If it's, if, depending on whether it's the verb or the noun, it's nakeo or naki. It's uh, the word we get Nike from, right? Nike tennis shoes. Hey, and just as a blessing this weekend, go ahead and look under your seats. We want to give you all a pair. I'm just kidding. It's not Oprah. You're not getting a pair of shoes. But, but the word Nike literally means victory. It's the reason Nike adapted it as their, uh, as their slogan. They put a swoosh on it. Check. We're done. We're victorious, right? Um, the United States has uh, built a missile, and they call it the Nike missile. I've never seen it, but I bet it really works, right? Because we did celebrate independence yesterday, so it probably works well. And so the, the word Nike, let me just read this definition to you. It means this, to win a victory over. To be victorious over, to be a victor, to conquer victory. Like right now, if I had a son, I'd name him Nike. This is awesome, right? Here's what, here, let me go on. It says this, genuine superiority that leads to overwhelming success, overthrowing an enemy so that all can see the victory. So John says, for everyone who believes that Jesus is the Son of God and our Savior, they have overcome, they have overthrown, they have been victorious over the trap of sin to the point that everybody knows, that the enemy already knows, and this is the victory, this is the overcoming that has overcome the world. It's all rooted in our faith. I I love this, the Greeks um, didn't even really use the word Nike, they very rarely, if ever, used the word Nike in description of a human activity. So that the Greeks had a goddess of, of victory, that Nike, and, and the Greeks did not believe that you could use the word Nike when referring to humanity because they did not believe that humans could actually have an overcoming, conquering victory. That it was a word only used for the gods. And John said, okay. So everyone who's been born of God, we are now in the family of God. Greeks, you might be right, but because we've confessed Christ as our Savior, we now have an equal standing in the victory that God, the creator of the world, has sustained on our part. John says, because we believe, because we have been born of God, we overcome the world and the victory that is ours. So the Greeks, you may say that man can't do it, but what what John would say is that Christ did it for man. I love this, the, the word Nike, it means a different words. One of the words I really like is conquer. And in fact, here, here's another way you can read this verse, just using that word conquer. For everyone who has been born of God conquers the world. And this is the conquering that has conquered the world, even our faith. Like I call that like the men's uh, standard version. That's like the MSV version of the, of the verse. Everyone who's conquered the world, this is the, I just feel like I should grunt my teeth and just spit, right? And so this is what John's saying. Look, you've conquered the world. You, if you're a believer, this verse is written to you that everyone, you, if you have placed your faith and trust in Christ, you've conquered the trap of sin. You've conquered everything that is conquered. You are a conqueror. Like you should look in the mirror in the morning and go, I am a conqueror. Paul gets in on this. Paul in the book of Romans says this. He says that no, in all these things we are more than conquerors. So Paul says, John, I see you there, and I raise it. Paul uses the word hooper nike, which means super conqueror. 
It's like a new superhero. Paul says, no, in all things, we are more than conquerors. We are super conquerors. We are super overcomers through him who loves us. Because it goes on in in Romans 8, it says this, For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. That what Paul says is because of what Christ did on the cross, you and me are super conquerors. We have overcome everything, sin traps, we've overcome ourselves, we've overcome our nagging parents, we've overcome everything in the world through the cross. Let's go back to verse 4. I want to show you one more thing about this word Nike. Right, one more thing. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. I just want us to focus on that one verb, overcomes, right there. That, that verb is in the present, active, indicative form which is a really long, nerdy way to say this. It's present in the fact that it's currently being experienced. That what, what this says is for everyone who has been born of God is currently experiencing the overcoming of the world. It's indicative in that it's the mood of assertion, which means this, it's not to be, it's not has, it, it is fully experienced in this moment. It's eternally present. So what it's saying is, is everyone who's been born of God is currently, in this moment, fully experienced the conquering of the traps of sin. And if you begin to read that verse and really let it sit into the, to the weight and the, the, the actual verb form, it means this, right now I'm a conqueror, right now I'm a conqueror, right now I'm a conqueror, 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 conqueror. That as we walk through life, that no matter the heights or depths or anything that comes against us or stands before us, you and I as believers stand in victory equal, equal to that which was won on the cross over the traps of sin, declaring victory, victory. Victory. So when you get worn out because I've worked so hard to try to beat this sin down, I would just tell you to remind you to walk back to the fact that when we try to will ourselves an obligation, we only find frustration. But when we try to run and pursue Christ and respond to who Christ is, we find victory. Because He is the victor. Here's a true statement. You do not have to overcome the world in order to become a Christian. I think we have this mindset that as soon as I overcome sin, as soon as I beat this sin down, as soon as I get this in check and in line, <clears throat> at, that, at that point, God will be happy and be ready for me to come and become a Christian. And I think the truth is this, is you don't have to overcome the world to become a Christian. It's the exact opposite. When you surrender to Christ, you overcome the world. That what overcomes the world, what's victorious over the world, is our surrender to the fact that I can't overcome the world apart from you. It's not Jesus plus. It's not I'm going to surrender my life to you and then I'm going to get really active. And it's not that Jesus is going, I'm going to throw you a rope and see if I can pull you in. I need you to, could you grab the rope? It's Jesus reaching down and pulling us up and sitting us in the boat and going, you're saved. You're, you're victor. You're successful. And it simply causes us to go, I, I need saving. Like, I can't do this on my own. Verse 5 says this. Who is it that overcomes the world except for the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? Who is it that overcomes the world except for the, the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? I love this, this, this word right here, who. John is very specific. As they're reading this letter, this would be a moment where they would read it, and the wording here literally means who. You, 
Like who, who right now in this moment will overcome the world? Who wants some of the victory of the cross? This verb here, this, this word here, who is not like, oh, whoever, you know, you, I don't know, what somebody in the distant future. John is literally going, in this moment, right now, who wants the victory? Who wants the victory? Here's the big idea for us today. Victory does not start with bold actions or rigorous obedience, but with intimate faith in Jesus. It does not start when we are bold in our actions or just rigorously or legalistically obedient. Victory is directly linked to intimate faith, intimate trust, intimate belief in Jesus Christ. We overcome the world because he overcame the world. You and I overcome the world because he overcame the world. So here's my question. I asked to you this morning the same question John asked. Who, in this moment, in this room, right now, walked in here thinking, I am, I got this, I can get this, I can work hard, I can be really good, I can beat down my sin, but in this moment, God's going, no, you can't. He's calling you to surrender. Who, in this moment, who, in this room, right now, is ready to surrender your life to Christ? John, ask it, and I ask it today. So I want to do this. I just want to invite you, if that's you, to say, hey, you know what? I just, I'll, as an act of surrender, I raise my hand. I got to surrender to Christ that he is victorious, that he died on the cross. He, he paid the debt of my sins. He overcame my sins. He's given me victory right here in this moment. If, if that's you, if you want to join the victory and say, I surrender to Christ, just raise your hand right here. Just declare it right here in this moment. I surrender my life to Christ. You know how you do it? You just raise your hand and you just tell him right now where you're at in your seat. You just go, Christ, I surrender. God, I cannot do this on my own. I cannot overcome the world. You've already overcome the world on the cross and I surrender to you and I, I've been, now I'm born of you and I'm a part of your family and I run after you. Right now in this moment. Just do it right there in your seat. And for the rest, for, for, the, for the others of us, for the rest of us, for those of us who said, right, I've already surrendered to Christ, I've already believed, I'm already a Christian, he's mine, then I'll just ask you this, then, then why would we not run in victory? In this very moment, you possess all the victory of the cross. You are positioned equal with the victory of Jesus to overcome the world. That what the scripture says, because of what Christ did on the cross, you and I share in his victory. You and I share in the fact because of Christ overcame the trap of sin and put his life on the cross to give us life, you and I now have victory to walk out of these doors and go, I am a conqueror. I'm not going to get beat down by sin. I'm not going to get beat down by circumstances because my Savior has already beaten it down already taken care of it. And so what I want to ask you to do is just to stand with me. This is a sign. We're just going to stand and we're going to proclaim this, this song that Christ is our cornerstone, that, that he is victorious. And then we're going to walk out of here with our heads held high because Christ has already won the victory. Pray with me. Jesus, we love you and we thank you that you're our cornerstone. We thank you that we can lean on you and trust you and just sit before you because you've already won. You're already the victor. You're already the champion. And we are just standing behind you with belts of championship wrapped around us that you earned for us. And all we did was join the team when the victory had already been won. Thank you for that. God, swell up in us a spirit of conquering, a spirit of victory because you are the victor. We pray this in your name.